Well, good evening. I trust that you had a good afternoon. It was absolutely gorgeous weather outside. Uh, We really enjoyed the afternoon out, and I trust that you did as well. Take your Bibles and turn uh, to the book of Ruth as we continue in our study of this book. And uh, we will deal, this is uh, kind of an interesting text tonight, because typically in narratives you take a larger section of the text. Tonight we deal with one verse. And that one verse is the end of chapter 3. We left it a couple weeks ago, if you remember, and we're going to deal with just one verse here at the end of chapter 3. And the scripture there says this, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. You say, pastor, how are you going to, how are you going to exposit this for a All of our time. Well, we're going to see there's some significant lessons for us to learn in this one verse tonight. And I was reminded of a news report. In fact, the Associated Press about 10 years ago reported on this story of really unmet desires escalating into an emergency phone call. And we've heard of these before. You know, some of these that you've heard about and you snicker to yourself about the person on the other end of that. And But we know the frustration as well. Evidently, though, a 27-year-old woman in Fort Pierce, Florida, walked into a McDonald's to get a 10-piece McNuggets meal. That's the scenario. She stood in line for a significant amount of time, and she finally made it to the counter and ordered her dinner. The employee took her order and her money, only to return moments later to inform the customer that they had just ran out of those low-sodium, tasty, little, I-don't-know-what's-in-them nuggets. They're gone. There's nothing uh, for them to give to her. When told that she could choose something else, anything else from the menu, the customer refused and demanded, just give me my money back. I want my McNuggets. The employee apologized and told her that all sales were final. (laughs) Wow. Uh, He did remind her, though, that she could get something else from the menu, anything else from the menu, even if it cost more, at no extra charge. No way, this woman insisted. It's McNuggets or my money back. Can you see yourself being on either side of this conversation? Uh, Sometimes I feel like the lady wanting McNuggets. Sometimes I feel like the poor guy on the other side of the counter, the employee. That's the situation going on. No way, it's... McNuggets or my money back. She couldn't be coaxed into eating a Big Mac or a McRib. I understand that one, actually. Uh, I don't know what's in those either. I don't want to know what's in those. Or even she couldn't be coaxed into a quarter pounder with cheese with jumbo fries. She became so angry that she stood at the counter, took out her phone, and dialed 911. Three times. Not just once. Not just twice, but three times. I mean, this is clearly an emergency. She never got her McNuggets, but when the police arrived, she did get a ticket for misusing the 911 emergency system. I wonder how many of us, you say, well, what does it have to do with what we're at in Ruth, where we're at in Ruth? I wonder how many of us treat God like he's an employee at McDonald's. We've come, we want something for ourselves We've paid, at least in our mind, a fair price to get it. God doesn't come through, at least in our minds, and we're left at the counter with options we never wanted. 
Even worse, we wait at the counter while God disappears, seems to disappear with our money, while we're left waiting for him to return and offer some guidance or some kind of guarantee. When God finally does appear, he demands that we partake of something we don't like, something that we would never have ordered in the first place, given the choice. One of the greatest tests of the Christian faith is standing at a vacant counter, waiting patiently in the sovereign direction of God. An even greater test of our faith is when God reappears to hand us something that we never would have chosen for ourselves. Reminds me also of Margaret Thatcher, former Prime Minister of England, who once said, I'm, a, I'm an extremely patient person, provided I get my own way in the end. That's not patience. Uh, that's not patience at all. Ruth is not guaranteed of her desired outcome. And we're going to do a bit of review as we pick up verse 18. She's not guaranteed of her desired outcome, and this will certainly be one of the longest days of her life. And indeed, that is the title of our message, The Longest Wait. Ruth chapter 3, verse 18. As she waits to hear what news Boaz will bring. So we've read the text already, we've introduced it, we've understood that the theme tonight is going to be waiting. Let us now ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Father, we are thankful that we have a God who is aboundingly merciful, overwhelmingly good, and gracious beyond our imagination. We also recognize that we serve a God who is holy, just, and righteous in every way. So, Lord, as we deal with this difficult subject of waiting, we recognize that we are a people, especially in this day and age, who do not want to wait. We want everything given to us on demand. In fact, that becomes the theme of everything from our choice of TV programs to the choice of dinners that we eat. Pray tonight, though, that we would learn the lesson that Naomi is seeking to demonstrate for Ruth, that as Ruth is learning it, that we too would learn to wait on our Redeemer, to recognize that there is nothing we can do while the Redeemer is doing His work. We praise you for all that we will learn tonight as we deal with this just one verse in the text of this incredible book, a book that is exciting to us, a book that is filled with joy for us, but a book that is going to challenge us also to understand the kinsman redeemer. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it this evening. Give me the words to say, give us hearts to listen, to obey, as we seek to stand at a vacant counter, waiting on your direction and your sovereignty. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it this evening. We ask your blessing upon it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Tonight, we have a similar outline as we have had in previous weeks in the evening. We've just kind of given you a few points and some space in your bulletin. And so I just uh, put the, those three points up. How the Lord leads, we want you to kind of fill in. Because there's a lot here that we're going to glean from the text that uh, takes far longer to explain than to read. And so there's going to be a lot of time for you to write some things down as the Lord impresses upon you those things that he brings to mind. And the first that we start with is Boaz's oath. Remember, and this is going to take us back to chapter 3, verse 13, so uh, turn back a little bit into the chapter, and remember Boaz and his character. His character has all along been godly, 
But we see his determination to follow God's law. And in verse 13, we see this. He says, remain. This is Boaz speaking. Ruth has come to him in the middle of the night, remember. He is there by the pile of grain, and he is stirred awake. And he sees Ruth here. They've had a conversation. She, in essence, says, will you marry me? And this is his response. He says, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz has demonstrated godly character all through our first introduction with him at the beginning of chapter 2. We've gotten to know him as a man of godliness, a man of gentleness, a man of compassionate care, especially as demonstrated to Ruth and to Naomi. We also recognize that he is honest as he is determined to follow the law of Moses. And we see that demonstrated here even in his oath. Ruth, despite being a Moabite, has listened to the instructions given to her and is waiting, as we get to verse 18, as we'll see in a moment, she's waiting and, like Boaz, is humbly submitting to God's will in obedience to the law of Moses. Can we say that about our own hearts? Are we willing to wait in obedience to God's directions? We live in a day and age where it is my way right away. I want it, and I want it now, and I want it the way I ordered it. I don't care if it's a special order. I don't care if it's a custom order. I want it, and I want it now. I was just reading a news article on how AI technology will make your lives better, and one of the ways that it's going to make your lives better, evidently, is that it will take your body measurements and custom form your clothing overnight. I bet that shrinks in the wash, in the dryer. Uh, That's one of the ways that AI is supposed to help along the way. We want it our way. We want it designed exactly for us, and we want it now. Tomorrow's too late. Boaz and Ruth have both demonstrated a willingness to follow God's direction, even if it takes time. And that is where we find Boaz. In verse 13, he has made an oath to Ruth that he will do everything in his power to settle the matter of Ruth's redemption quickly. Notice again, we've already studied it, but notice it again. He says, remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Can you imagine the uncertainty as Boaz is speaking? There's an uncertain element to what he just said. If the other redeemer redeems Ruth, Boaz doesn't marry Ruth. There's a good chance because of Elimelech's possessions and land that there's a good chance that uh, this other redeemer will go ahead and redeem Ruth. But Boaz is willing to follow through in what the law says. He's not willing to twist the law, to twist God's word, to say what he wants it to say, although I imagine there was that intensity and that desire to do so. He's certainly fallen in love with Ruth, but he follows the law and he makes an oath. And the oath is made on the life of Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, Boaz will fulfill. 
He's making a vow to Ruth that he will redeem her at all possible costs, and she can believe his promise with the same assurance that she can believe in the existence of Yahweh. That's what he just said. As Yahweh lives, so too is the truth of this vow. I will follow through as I have vowed to do. Boaz is promising that as sure as the Lord lives, if the closer Redeemer does not fulfill his obligation of redemption, he will. Early the next morning, skip down again to verse 18 of chapter 3. Early the next morning, Ruth goes to Naomi's home, Boaz heads into the city gates, and along the way develops a plan for when he meets the other potential redeemer, the closer relative. By the way, as we will get into it a little bit, Lord willing, next week, we're going to understand that this kinsman redeemer, this one who's closer, is a brother of Elimelech. So this is an uncle of who... Ruth had originally married. He's the closer relative, and this was required by the law that this would be as close of a relative as possible to Elimelech's line because there was no heir after Elimelech. And so this follows through that this is the line that would have needed to be the redemption line, the redeemer line. And so this would have been an uncle, Elimelech's probably youngest brother. And This is the possible Redeemer. Can you imagine the fear in Boaz's heart as he goes to the city gates? Can you imagine the fear in Ruth? A Redeemer that she doesn't know. A Redeemer that she hasn't built a relationship. Could potentially be the kinsman Redeemer. Regardless, Boaz says we're going to follow the law. And that leads to Naomi's question. And Naomi's question is... Uh, leading us into a reminder to wait. It would seem as if Naomi has been up throughout the night because looking back into the chapter, look at verse 16. And verse 16 says, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare? That is the mother-in-law, that is Naomi. said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. You can imagine the, the chatter at this point. And the chatter is increasing. It's early morning and Ruth goes to Naomi's house, and Naomi is waiting there to receive Ruth. And she asks her an interesting question. The ESV has tried to simplify it for us, but it is a kind of a fumbling question in Hebrew. If we were to take it literally and translate it literally, it is, who are you? Naomi just asked Ruth, who are you? Well, that seems like an odd question, unless Naomi is groggy and sleepy through uh, a tired or a, a wake or a sleepless night, having not been uh, able to sleep all night long. It would seem like an odd question that she doesn't recognize Ruth in the early morning light. What is going on? But the expression carries the idea of who are you now? That wouldn't be in the word, but it would be the implied elements of the translation of this phrase from Hebrew into English. Who are you now? In other words, are you a bride-to-be or not? Is he going to fulfill the Redeemer's vow to you or not? Did he say yes or not? That's the question. That's what is 
uh, floating around in this early morning hour, and Naomi is probing Ruth for all the details. Tell me everything he said. And everything that he said, she's taking in and processing and rolling over. And you can imagine this conversation that was held was tossed to and fro, back and forth between these two ladies uh, for the next few hours. Now, did he say this? How did, how did he say that? Think back to uh, the relationships that you've had. And you evaluate every question. Did, is that what he meant when he said is that what she actually meant when she said? That is the banter that is going between Naomi and Ruth, and including in verse 17 how he measured out the six measures of barley that he had given to her and uh, allowed Ruth to go back to Naomi with something to eat for the next several weeks. Ruth begins to recall these events. And at the end of verse 16, Ruth has poured out all of the details of the evening. And it is clear to Naomi and to Ruth that Boaz wants to marry Ruth. It ought to be. Boaz said so. You can almost hear the excitement between uh, Ruth and Naomi as all of the details are recounted early on this particular morning. And then Naomi gives her counsel. This is where we want to spend more time this evening. Naomi gives her counsel. Look into verse 18. She replied, Wait, my daughter. Wait, my daughter. Until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. There's a lesson for you and I to learn here. And that's where we're going to take some more time. These are shocking words. Because remember, it's been Naomi who's been pushing Ruth. Do you remember that through the, the narrative so far? It was Naomi who, when she found out that Ruth had been in the fields of Boaz, Naomi says, go back there. Don't go anywhere else. Boaz had told Ruth that, but now Naomi reiterates that. Don't go anywhere else. Go to Boaz's fields. Go there to glean, to reap. Stay there. It's Naomi who's been pushing along the way. It was Naomi at the beginning of chapter 3 who said, uh, let's move this along. Why don't you go have a conversation with Boaz and tell him that you intend to marry him and ask him to be the kinsman redeemer. And remember, that's the only time that it was appropriate for Ruth to be uh, having that conversation. And she does have that conversation with Boaz. She's the one that goes to Boaz on Naomi's insistence. Go and let him know your intentions. Now, she tells Ruth, literally, sit still. Sit still. What a shocking turn in the narrative. After all the action of the last few weeks, and now the counsel of Naomi is, wait. Don't do any more. Don't meddle. Don't get into conversations. Don't go down to the city gates. Don't go find the other Redeemer. Sit still. There's rich truth here, believer. The council has great truth. And the truth is this. There is nothing that Ruth can do further. She is powerless to redeem herself, 
The law can only reveal her condition and the utter dependency that she must have on her Redeemer. And isn't that where you and I are as well? We cannot work for our redemption. We cannot earn our redemption, and we cannot send ourselves into the middle of the redemptive work. What a wonderful picture of the believer, the bride of Christ, like Ruth. All that we ever do is tell Christ that we love Him and we want to be taken under His authority and His care. We want to rest under His wings. And when we do, we discover that Christ loved us first. Isn't that what we've seen trickling through the narrative? Remember what what Ruth told Boaz? That it was His wings that she wanted to rest under? Reminding him of his prayer that the Lord would provide wings of refuge and be the refuge for Ruth. And now Ruth turns to Boaz and says, you are the answer to your own prayer. And now as we come to the end of chapter 2, and we realize that now Ruth is having to understand and apply the truth that she has illustrated already. She's discovered that she has told her Redeemer that she loves him. She wants to be taken under his authority and care to rest under his wings and has discovered that Boaz loved her first and that he would work on her behalf. For you and I, Christ alone is capable of meeting the conditions of the law that binds us to another family member. Christ alone can pay the price of redemption. Christ alone paid the price of redemption. Christ alone will take it upon himself, take upon himself our debt and settle the legal claims against us and bring us into his family as his chosen bride. But you can't meddle in it. You can't get involved in it. You can't try to earn it. You can't try to obtain it in any way other than just to receive. The word sit still, just so we understand it, is an agrarian term. And it is super fitting that Samuel would use this term and that Naomi would use this term, given the fields that Ruth has been in all summer long or all of harvest season long. It is an agrarian term reflecting on the farmer who must sit still and endure and wait while the grain finishes growing. I pastored for 11 years out on the plains of Kansas, and I will tell you, I looked at many a farmer and said, you have far more faith than I do. They said, what do you mean? I said, I would be out cutting the grain way early because I would be fearful of it being destroyed by hail or by rain or by the lack of rain. You have, when they put the seed in the ground and they've fertilized and they've taken care of the weed problem, they must sit still they can't grow out and go out and coax the corn plant to grow they can water it sure or they can not water it at times but they can't coax it out of the ground they can't cause it to produce greater grain once it's already been put into the ground the lessons that a farmer teaches us are regarding faith like Ruth we must sit still and wait There's nothing we can do to redeem our situation. 
The Redeemer alone must do that work. Kind of like sitting at the vacant counter, having prayed for something, having thought that we have done the work for something, and God is doing something different for us. Notice the basis of Naomi's instructions. This is exceptionally important for us, and we're going we're gonna to observe it in other texts for the rest of the evening together. The basis. Notice at the end of verse 18. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. There's an interesting discussion that goes on among scholars because the grain that was given, the six measures of grain, should be about four to six weeks worth of grain for Ruth and Naomi to eat. So the question is, did Boaz believe that it was going to take six to eight weeks to resolve the matter between the other Redeemer and himself? And we certainly don't see Naomi believing that. Many scholars today would, or a lot of scholars, not many perhaps, but a number of scholars would indicate that, well, Boaz is planning for an extenuating or an extended period of time where there would be a discussion between the kinsman redeemer uh, that's closer and Boaz himself. But Naomi believes that Boaz is going to take care of it today, right now. And indeed, that's what he does as we look into chapter 4, is he immediately takes care of it. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Boaz doesn't wait. He doesn't say, well, if I happen to run into the other Redeemer, I'll, I'll bring it up with him. He goes to the gate and he sits there and he waits until the other Redeemer walks by. And he engages in a conversation with him. But back here in verse 18, Naomi expects him to respond in the same way. And her instruction given to Ruth was, wait, because Boaz is going to come through for you. Just watch. How important that instruction is for you and I. Just wait. The Savior will come through. The Redeemer will come through. We wait because of the character of the one we wait on. He's not a McDonald's employee. <laughs> the end of verse 18, the basis for Naomi's confidence is in the oath that Boaz had already uttered and the zeal that he has demonstrated to finish what he started. So we celebrated this morning as we took the Lord's table together. The Lord's table is offered to us as an ordinance of the church to remind us of the willingness of our Savior to lay down His body and His blood on our behalf. Now, as the bride of Christ, we wait for our Redeemer. And the wait has been long. That's why we're studying 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> the wait has been long, but will it take place? Yes. Why? Because of the character of the one that we're waiting for. That is what Ruth is learning here. Ruth can sit still because Boaz is not about to. Ruth can sit still because Boaz is not going to sit still. She can rest because Boaz will work. And he is the only one who can. It reminds me of several other texts. We're going to look at a few of those together. Turn over to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. 
This word is used again instead of sit, it's in reference to stand. But notice Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Standing on the brink of destruction, you have the Israelites, the Red Sea at their front, as they're walking to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army at their back, and Moses says, Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again, and the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent, and you only be silent. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? I don't think we truly can. You have the army of Pharaoh coming at you. You have nothing by which to defend yourself. You have fled quickly out of the land of Egypt. You've plundered the Egyptians as God said you would. So you're carrying the riches of Egypt with you. And here they come to get it back. And God has led you to this point in the Red Sea, and I believe if you look at the Red Sea, there's a little a cove that's kind of cut out, a land cove that goes out into the Red Sea, and there the Red Sea dips down. I don't know if that's where the Lord had Israel go or not. It's an interesting place. And if it is there where the Lord had them go, they would be surrounded on three sides by water, and the other side by Pharaoh. Can you imagine Moses telling you, stand firm and be silent? (laughs) Um, Moses, they have chariots. They'll just drive through us and mow us down. Stand firm and be silent. That was the instruction that was given to Ruth. Stand firm. Turn to Job, chapter 37. Turn over to the book of Job. We see this word again. It is this word that has captured my fascination as we have studying just this one verse together today. It is this word that has captured uh, my imagination and my fascination. Look in verse 37, or Job 37, verse 14. Job 37, verse 14. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. This word that we've been studying, sit still, stand still, stop, is the same word. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. This is a demonstration. If you continue on, the text says, Do you know how God lays His command upon them and causes the lightning of His clouds to shine? And a demonstration and an explanation of the majesty and the authority and the power of Almighty God. Job, stop. Another one, and probably one you've already have thought of is in relationship to this word. Turn over to the book of Psalms, Psalms 46. Uh, You may have probably did already think of this one, even if you didn't know where it was found. Psalm 46, verse 10. The scripture says this, the same word is used, Be still and know 
that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. This is the reminder that God is our fortress. And again, the instruction to be still and know that He is God. Be still and know. The believer can sit still, stand still, and be still. Because our Redeemer does not sit still. He does not stand still. And He will not sit or be still. Even now, let us consider as we close just a few more passages tonight, uh, all in the New Testament. You say, well, Pastor, those are all in the Old Testament. I understand. We have the same instruction today for us as believers to sit still, stand still, and to be still. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Why are we to be that way? We're going to catch why. In Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to see the first of three ways that Christ is now unceasingly working for us. Verse 1 of chapter 8 in the book of Hebrews. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Why can we as believers rest in our Redeemer? Because he is actively working as our high priest. He is actively interceding for the believer. So sit still. Sit still. Philippians chapter 2, a passage we studied a few months ago, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. The scripture says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We recognize that Christ is at work in us as believers. And that happens through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It happens through the process of sanctification. It happens in the sovereign direction of God in our lives. Christ is unceasingly working in the life of each and every believer. And finally, Romans chapter 8, as we're going backwards, Romans chapter 8, listen how Christ is unceasingly working here. Romans eight twenty eight, a familiar text to us. Scripture says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purposes. This is an interesting text because it's usually pulled out of context. It's ripped out of this passage here in Romans chapter 8, and it's hung out on its own. But Paul isn't leaving it out here on its own. It fits within the context, and it fits within the context that what God has started in you, he will finish. I love Romans chapter 8. In fact, if you were to briefly summarize the theological truths that have been taught through the book of Romans, the first Great truth is justification. And we see it in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, where we have Romans 1, 2, and 3 specifically referring to sanct- or for justification. How are you justified? Then you have chapters 4, 5, and 6, and into 7, that speak of sanctification. What are you to do once you're justified? You are to be sanctified. And then you have chapters 6, 7, and 8, that say what God will do because you have been justified and sanctified, you will be glorified. 
as Christ has been glorified. And he ends right here in this great truth that is building up to uh, the unseen or the uh, antagonist, the questioner in in chapter 9. He's going to build to that in chapter 9. But he builds to the end of chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Neither tribulation, nor distress, nor sword, nor nakedness, peril. All of the list that Paul has included at the end of Romans chapter 8. And just before he gets there, all that he has taught, the glorification of the believer. In other words, the being brought from justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are those who are to be practicing sanctification, growing in Christ, to be like Christ. And then in chapter 8, he says that you and I who know Christ as Savior will one day receive glorified bodies. Verse 30 says this as he kind of brings it all together. Verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We wait on our Redeemer for our glorification because of who he is. Like Ruth could wait on Boaz because of who he was. Because of his zeal to finish what he had started. This morning we took, in the ordinance of the Lord's table, we took part in the oath, the vow that was made that Christ is not done. When you come to know Christ as Savior, you become part of the bride of Christ. And He is arranging all things together for His good purposes on on behalf of the believer. You may not know that it's a good purpose, but he arranges all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So how do we endure difficult things? How do we go through difficult moments in life? How do we keep our eyes steadily on Christ? Because of who he is. It's easy to get into the middle and try to meddle and fix our way out of it, but you cannot, and we must not. Let us be those who sit still. That was the instructions that was given to the Israelites in the face of Pharaoh's grand army. And could they trust in the Lord? Could they trust in the Lord? Yes. It was the same message that was given to Job. When he lost everything. And even his friends were lousy. Could he be still because of who God is? Yes. It was also that which the psalmist includes. God is our fortress. We are to be still and know That he alone is God. Beloved, when we look at Ruth's example, we see the work of the kinsman redeemer. And when we see the work of the kinsman redeemer, we recognize 
that that is an image of what Christ has done for us. He is worthy of our sitting still, of our waiting. Let us learn from Ruth's example and be still. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize the challenges that we face in our world today have caused us to typically listen to the tyrant of the urgent. And that tyrant is loud. That tyrant is unbecoming. But it does demand our attention. And we are quick to turn our attention from sitting still to being fixers in our minds. Lord, as we recognize that there are times where we are active, we are to put on the full armor of God, and we studied that this morning. But there are times where we wait, where we're still, and where we are like Ruth, waiting for the Redeemer to do the work. Lord, as we think of the eschatological blueprint that has been laid out for us in your word, we recognize that we are waiting patiently for Christ's return. We are to be waiting patiently for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we pray that it would be soon. But if it is not, I pray that we would continue day to day sharing the gospel with those who do not know Christ as their Savior. That we would day to day be making disciples of those who do. And that we would day to day be sitting still and waiting for the return of our Redeemer. As we await news, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, there is great truth, and we have spent all evening in just one verse tonight. But as we see chapter 4 begin to unfold in the book of Ruth, I pray that we would now be able to see it with more clarity. See it with greater authority as we understand the kinsman redeemer and the role that Boaz would play with Ruth and our own redeemer and the role that he plays with the church, the bride of Christ. Or as we depart from here, we will immediately be impacted by the urgencies of day-to-day living. I pray that in the midst of them that you would allow your spirit and cause your spirit to cause us to sit still because you are at work to rest in you, to lay the worry aside and the stress aside and the discouragement and the depressions and the anxieties aside and be still before you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what we've learned in the book of Ruth this evening. We ask that we would be faithful in applying it in the week to come, that your name would be glorified in our obedience to you and to your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you have taught us and instructed us throughout the day today. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.